Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It's a jam-packed show today, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet comedian Daniel Stolfi, who turned his experience with cancer into a funny stage show called Cancer Can't Dance Like This in 2010. He's revisited the subject for The Comedian vs. Cancer, a raw, moving, and comedic memoir detailing his journey through cancer treatment at the young age of 25. We'll talk to Daniel in just a little while. We'll also get to know Mark Williams, who became famous playing English wizard Arthur Weasley in seven of the hit Harry Potter films. Since wrapping up the Potter movies, Williams has starred in Father Brown, one of the UK's longest-running daytime drama series on the BBC, which is now available on BritBox in Canada. First up, though, let's meet Anne-Marie Moraes and Ronnie Rowe Jr., the showrunner and star, respectively, of The Porter, a great new CBC drama set in the 1920s about the moment when railway workers from both Canada and the United States joined together to give birth to the world's first black union, the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters. First thing, shoes are important. No scuffs, perfect polish. And when you walk... Walk like a man with answers, because whether or not you have them, that's who you have to be. Tell me about the importance of the creation of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters as the first Black-led labor union in Canada. I think it's so uh, significant, Richard, in a lot of ways, because um, for us, you know, coming up and growing up in this country, those were the parts of our history that were denied us in our education, that were never spoken of, a, of a, to us when we went into higher education. And still there are so many people who do not realize the claim that they have to this nation's building, to uh, what we consider the civil rights movement on a larger scale and that, there are sparks of that and seeds of that all over the nation. And we have a, a chapter in those stories. So I think it's so imperative that the unearthed stories, the lived stories, the unspoken stories are being told now in a, in a larger platform. Well, tell me how the railway facilitated the freedom movement for Black Canadians, because it's a fascinating thing. And of course, it makes sense. When you when you hear it, of course it does. And the show does a nice job of illustrating it, but tell me. Yeah, I think we, we need to consider the railway um, sort of the internet of the age of that time, connecting not just people and physical, just physically distant people, but it was the way to get information through uh, to checkpoints to, um, you know, really clandestine operations happened in these communications and in these connections and these exchanges. So when you think of our information high, we was an information railway at the time, and we were able to really sort of get our message across to really uh, defy borders in a way because we had a freedom to move and uh, there's a line that uh, our character, Junior Massey, says, you know, I'm, I'm a porter. There's, I'm the most invisible man on earth. And, and that's true. I mean, it was a negative, but he was able to use that to his advantage. And a lot of these porters did because they were overlooked or unseen or unconsidered. Um, really, these were incredibly intelligent individuals who were hired for that basis. And yet that portion seemed to be forgotten in this greater struggle that, hey, these are these are smart guys and they're going to take advantage of any opportunity to uh, to liberate themselves from oppression. I don't want to give anything away, 
here. Right. So we'll talk around a, a, a plot point that happens in the in the story. But at we'll one point, you. someone dies, one of the porters dies, and mm-hmm. their friends and family are told that they have to pay for his uniform because he happened to be wearing his uniform when this terrible thing happened. That's the dehumanizing or one of the dehumanizing aspects of it. That's one of the things that really shows you uh, in no unclear way how poorly uh, these porters were being treated and the need for a union. 100%. Yeah, back then, these these men were responsible for doing any and everything and, and not being compensated for it. Sorry, just I, I, just going back to, to, to some of the places of where I was emotionally in doing that, because you just you talk about the, it being dehumanizing. And that's why it was so important for Zeke to start this union and, and for Philip A. Randolph to actually start it in the 1920s for these sleeping car porters, because the things that they had to do were just, as you said, uh, dehumanizing. So you had an emotional reaction to that question. And you were reliving, I guess, that moment in the script. Uh, tell me what it was like then to embody that. We're now talking months and months and months after you would have shot any th- scenes for this television show, but it still stays with you. It's still part of you. Tell me a little bit about that. It was uh, trying for for twofold and for two reasons, because when I had to live it, but I had to relive something that actually happened to people and that actually still happens to people um so uh to do justice to the story and of the work you have to really you have to go there and you have to you have to experience it truthfully and so yeah you (laughs) you have to watch like cartoons or or something after the fact just Just to to let it go (laughs) yeah just to just to kind of be like come back to to reality because it's, it's, it's so it lines will get blurred sometime because you're just like, ah, <laughs> you're listening to my interview with Anne-Marie Mores and Ronnie Rowe Jr. of the Porter, a new drama now on CBC television. I thought that in that couple of scenes or two or three scenes that it takes for that particular part to play out that, uh, it, it just spoke volumes. It, it speaks volumes, and it was such an interesting way to illustrate the dehumanization of them, that the, the uniform was worth more than the man. Uh, it, it, it gave me chills and just did again, as, as you say it, or as I say it. So tell me a little bit about um, creating those moments that really uh, will, will make a, an impact on uh, viewers. That's the stuff that people talk about. It, it is the stuff that you, it's the, not just the stuff that people talk about, it's the stuff that you as a writer or a creator, I mean, it keeps you up at night because it is so in parallel to your own life and lived experience in different ways and to the generations that came before us. I think it was a balance that we tried to strike, um, especially in sort of building these stories because, because you are living it, because you're in the, you don't want to feel um, you don't want to feel suffocated because you're living it and then you're watching it and then it feels like there's no reprieve. So we really wanted to really be measured about how and when we implicated and uh, we um, really 
implemented those moments. Mm -hmm. So it felt like, as you said, like it was really the final wound or the final insult or the final on top of what we visually experienced. Because when we open, when we meet these people, we meet them, you know, although it's a rough beginning, we do meet them in a relative state of joy in the fullness of their lives and here to see them made small. So it's like, what are the moments that we recall personally? And we took our personal moments of being held at the border or pulled over or stopped or called, or can I touch your hair or um, all those things. And we kind of made sure that we were finding similar breaths and spaces in our stories to really echo the things that we endure or have endured for generations and generations that make it really sting. How do you make sure that you are historically accurate? I know you had historians working with you, but I have a quote here from you where you say uh, that the, the, the Anne-Marie, the showrunner, would text me every day, said one of the historians and say, did this really happen? <laughs> <laughs> And you wanted to, because if you take the viewer out of it, yeah. uh, you're going to lose them, right? So you want to make sure that you are as historically accurate as possible. So uh, did that aid the storytelling for you? Or did it make it a little bit more difficult because there was so much detail to deal with? Yeah, I, you know, I, I resolve in every series I, I do to know that someone is going to be displeased. <laughs> so I come in, I come in from that perspective and say, okay, you know, we are going to always try to, if we cannot be, because you know, we are creating drama and fiction. And this is a large scope experience that we are collapsing into a few years, really. Yep. And yep. so not everything can play out real time in a series. So we know that we're going to be um, playing with history in some moments. We're going to be exact to the history in other moments. And we've always tried to be, what Marsh and I you know, agreed upon is like, we always want to capture the spirit of the history and the spirit of the historical character, even if we are playing with dates or playing with times or playing right. with events. I don't know what a Marcus Garvey was like in New York, but I can tell by the summary of the information and the audio tapes and what I know of what I've read and experienced in the, in the, in the passed down stories, I am presenting uh, you know, a perspective mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. on that, which is not everyone's perspective. Yep. So I loved Sage Matthews who did North of the Color Line, who was one of our consultants on this. I mean, literally we, we would think of the most incredulous things and say, hey, we're, we're thinking of this idea and it's kind of happened to, oh, that happened. <laughs> that really <laughs> happened. Here are, the, here are the things. Like We thought we were so far out of the depths yeah. and, uh, and sometimes history is a horror show and it, it, it works in our favor cinematically, but um, it's, it never ceased to amaze me. The wild, far off thing is true or based in truth or grounded in truth. So it's always been a learning experience for us. Tell me about some of the research that you did, not necessarily into the actual historical events, 
But I would imagine that if you're playing someone who lived in the 1920s, and I, I would assume would have been born in 1899 or something, you're, you know, you're playing someone in and around that age, you know, but they would speak differently than we do today. They would carry themselves differently. I would imagine certainly the clothes are a little different. What kind of research did you do just to get a feel for a person who would have lived at that moment? Well, I actually watched a lot of interviews that were available um, of sleeping car porters. Oh, wow. And, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like you would get a lot of them in their older um, days, but you could kind of get the cadence of how they would speak and you could hear the wisdom and the experience in their, in their voice. Um, and also just like a, a lot of just research on the war as well, because I had to tie in how he carried himself based on being, um, part of, part of the war, right. And being a soldier. So it, there was a lot of that, but mostly just watching a lot of interviews on sleeping car porters and speaking about their experiences. I hadn't thought of the idea of coming back from the war. Of course, you're different. Of course, that will change a person, especially the, the first world war, which was, uh, I mean, no war is without its casualties and all that, but the First World War was an exceptionally bloody, uh, horrible time. And to come back from that, uh, will you, you come back with a different mindset? 100%. 100%. And, and that was part of the, the backstory that I want to tie in with Zeke was the, the PTSD mm -hmm. um, and, and, and always being in fight or flight and in that kind of like, always ready mode, you know, because I don't think, I think you definitely change after experiencing all of that, you know, that you have to be changed. And you weave that into the character and we see it in a, a number of the scenes. Uh, Zeke is a porter, uh, mm -hmm. which means that when he's working with the customers, with the guests, he has to be, yes, sir, proper. no, sir. That's, yeah, very proper. And, you know, this is, of course, I'll do that for you. Uh, but then you step off the, the train and you see him working against the, the, the cooks in the um, cooking car. Of, right. the, of the of the train and that sort of thing. There is racism involved on their end. Uh, and, and Zeke does not uh, back down from that. And that perhaps comes from that war experience where you're just charging forward. 100%. And, and I also think also just where you are in the point of your life and, and, and where you want something to change. Yeah. And at a certain point, it's either going to go left or right. And he's, I, I think it, where we find him, he's starting to, to, speak up a little bit more. Well, you're covering a lot of topics here as well. So mm -hmm. set in the 1920s, the, the porters that the story revolves around uh, were all in World War One. You have to imagine that there's a certain amount of PTSD that that goes along with that once you're back in in civilian life. Uh, obviously, the racism that they uh, that they uh, encountered is a big part of the story. But I like that there's an optimism to all of them. It might be a guarded optimism a little bit, but there's an optimism to all of them. And uh, they're coming at uh, their goals in life. I think probably all four of them from four different angles, uh, but they all have uh, optimism. And if you don't have hope, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. Yeah, I think that's, I think you said it exactly right. Um, the reason we persevere is because there is a hope, if not for ourselves, but a generation behind us. So I, I don't think I could ever 
participate or create something where I felt that wasn't in an element of the series or an element of the narrative in, in some way, because life is hard and you just need to know that it, it's possible to get to the other side or something. And I always want to be a part of that type of storytelling. You're listening to my interview with Anne-Marie Moraes and Ronnie Rowe Jr. of The Porter, a new drama now on CBC television. I think in the, the like you said, the four or five characters that we're following, they all have this desired goal yeah. that they're trying to attain. They just have different ways about going for it. And a lot of times their goals are conflicting one another. So then that's where you get the conflict. Alfre Woodard's in here. Tell me about uh, having her on set. It changed the the presence and the dynamic of set as soon as she came. Uh, she's uh, she's a beast. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's, a, she's a legend. Um, she's so very humble, though. Mm. So humble and and just has this this presence about her, but so very articulate. <laughs> I remember um, she she did like a just a little speech and it was just it was beautiful like just off the top just just speaking from the heart of what she was experiencing and just just so lovely and i thought she was just so important to have because of her experience and how she it kind of rubbed off on a lot of our, our female cast members especially muna because uh, muna had to work with her um one-on-one very often and it was I was able to watch them do a scene at one point and it was beautiful to see like yeah. just the how supportive and and understanding she was within the process of it all. And yeah, she, she's amazing. She has uh, been through it and it's so great to see someone who comes on of her stature, comes on and pays it forward. And that's, that's exactly what she did. She was just so um, available. For, yeah. for anything that you had to ask her, she was willing to offer it up for you. So she, she's amazing. What do you hope people take away from the Porter? Wow, that, that diverse stories are important and that black history is Canadian history. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? You want to put it, like, put it in this box, but it's just integral for all Canadians. And, and I, I just want them to, to understand the importance of just how monumental that was in, in just the history of the country and not just uh, a culture. So the, there is the story element of the Porters, uh, the optimism that we've talked about. We've talked about uh, representation. There's a lot going on here. What do you hope people take away from it? Do you hope that they are simply entertained? Do you hope that it's a history lesson? Do you hope that it deepens people's understanding? Or do you hope all that stuff comes together? <laughs> <laughs> I hope all that. I think that's a beautiful stew, Richard. It's so wonderful things. Um, you know, at the end of the day, yes, you want to, you want, we want to make great television. We want to make the kind of TV that not only Canada is proud of, but you just, you're just proud, you know, no matter where you are in this world. For me, I think everyone will have a different answer to that question. For me personally, um, I love the, the triumph. I love the, the, the story of hope. I love someone watching our show and think, if they can do it, so can I. You know, whatever, apply that to whatever situation, whatever feels like a David and a Goliath impossible battle in your life to think that these people broke ground and shifted history. And it's like, if they can do it, you are of that line, you are of that ancestry, you are of that tradition. If they can do it, so can you. Emory, thanks so much for talking to me today. Pleasure to speak to you. Well, 
pleasure. It's yeah. wonderful. I enjoy you immensely, and I'm so glad that I got to meet you. Well, nice <laughs> to meet you. If I wanted to get the porters into a union, what's the first thing I should do? The great fear of the white worker is that our elevation means their elimination. We are supposed to create our own opportunities. There are rules to be obeyed, Marlene, and I strongly suggest you start playing yours. That was my interview with Anne-Marie Moraes and Ronnie Rowe Jr. of The Porter, a new drama on CBC television that depicts the history of black Canadian and African-American men who worked as Pullman porters in the period following World War I. In this segment, my guest is Daniel Stolfi. His memoir, The Comedian vs. Cancer, is a raw, moving, and comedic book detailing his journey through cancer treatment at the tender age of 25. His initial response to being diagnosed with cancer was to create the award-winning hit one-person stage play, Cancer Can't Dance Like This, which he performed for 10 years across North America and raised in excess of $100,000 for charities such as the Sunnybrook Foundation. A portion of the proceeds from the the Comedian versus Cancer sales will benefit Young Adult Cancer Canada. Here's Daniel Stolfi. I have a quote here uh, where you say you think about it all the time. Uh, is it true 14 years ago it's still at the top of your mind? Oh, yeah. I, I, there's not a day that goes by that uh, I don't think about it in some sort of way. Uh, and there's just so many things that I can draw from from my experience and it comes up every day it was two years of treatment right so mm -hmm. it was weekly chemotherapy treatment uh for, for two full years of my life and that was my job i was a i was a cancer patient for two years and and i i you know saw it all and i mean i and i read your story as well richard uh and uh you've seen <laughs> a lot too so um the very similar uh paths and so it just it just is always it's always there it's you know in a way but not in a bad way never in this way where i'm like uh you know beating myself up about it it's more about appreciating those little things in life that you can sometimes take for granted you know that's what happened to me completely so after i was diagnosed and went through the surgery and went through about a year and a half of chemo not as much as wow. you but wow. it was enough yeah. <laughs> um yeah. uh it, it's funny how uh, my attitude about things changed because i i figured out early on that if i was going to let this be like a sort of Damocles that hung over my head all the time that it, I was going to go down a weird rabbit hole. So I decided uh, to try and make the best of what was a very bad situation. And that involved changing my mindset. And it feels like that's what you've done as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you have, and, to, I think you have to, you know, in what ways did you do that? Um, it was about it, honestly embracing the, the fact that I, that I had it like just, owning it basically owning the, the the illness and and uh and also you know and finding creative outlets too for for myself i mean i'm an artist i'm an actor i'm a, I'm a comedian you know and i created a one-person show you know for it and, and it it uh it's called cancer can't dance like this and it it, uh, it did really well it was very cathartic for me uh, cancer will do a lot of things to you it'll, it'll beat you up it'll knock you down it'll walk all over but because of that cancer makes you gangster what I mean by that is before I had cancer, I do things a certain way. I take life a lot more cautiously. But after you're staring death in the face every day, you have a tendency to do things a little more gangster. I had only initi initially planned on doing it once. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I remember getting interviewed uh, by you six years ago when it was my last show that I yeah. was doing. 
I ended, I ended up doing a, a 10 year anniversary special for it. <laughs> it's never the last one, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, there, that was, there was a lot of catharsis there, but it, but it became more about uh, helping others uh, after a certain point, because, you know, I, I had shared my story and, um, uh, and that, and that was great for me. Uh, but I just, I saw the impact it was having on other people too. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta keep doing this. So. Well, you, I think sharing this story is important. Uh, there is nothing or in my life anyway, there was nothing more uh, earth shattering as being told by a doctor that you have cancer. And it, it, it rocked me to my very core. And once I managed to work past that, and once I started having chemotherapy and you start meeting a lot of other people who are also having, mm -hmm. uh, uh, working through their journey with cancer, you start to realize that while we all have one thing in common, we all have this disease, we all approach it from a lot of different ways. There's so there's as many different kinds of ways of thinking about it as there are people that, that have it. But I thought that writing about mine, uh, was making like a, a roadmap for other people uh, that might have to go through because things happen quickly. A lot of stuff happens and you get a lot of information very quickly. And before you know it, you're in a hospital. And, uh, and so I wanted to make a roadmap. You did that with the show. Now you've turned it into a book. And tell yeah. me a little bit about uh, the differences and maybe the similarities between the, the show and the book. Well, they're actually, they're two totally different things and I didn't know they would be, but I had been keeping a roadmap journal, just very similar to you. I was just, I was writing things down so that one day I could look back on it just mm. to know this is what I'm going through and this is what I was going through. And I was writing it in real time. You're listening to my interview with Daniel Stolfi, author of The Comedian Versus Cancer on The Richard Krause Show. Never, never with the intention again of publishing anything, yeah. I, but this it, is just, it was just sort of this this process and then I've done the show and this memoir or this this journal this collection of journals and stories was still sitting on my laptop just you know collecting digital dust and I and I was but I was like there's so much more that I I couldn't share in a one hour mm -hmm. comedy special and it was a comedy it's a comedy special it's more of a spectacle kind of show I was trying to entertain people and keep it light but also keep it keep it real and and take you through that 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 journey uh, but while keeping it humorous and, uh, and with the book, it's just, it's, it's a much more detailed look mm -hmm. at what it is to go through it. And, and, uh, and, you know, and I, I read your, again, I read your, um, your articles, uh, on the CTV, uh, blog there and, uh, and, and it's like that. And I was like, Oh, Richard, you're basically, we basically told the same story. Well, it, it, well I, I, I think that the, the journey is so often the same yeah. uh, because oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what happens is all of a sudden doctors with grim faces start telling you, uh, using words you don't really understand, uh, and telling you what the next couple of years of your life are going to look like. And I decided to write about it in real time, like you did, because I wanted uh, an outlet for it. I didn't want it just rattling around in my head. I needed to put it down somewhere. And it was interesting though, that, uh, the, it, it eventually became a series on, on the ctv.ca, uh, website. Uh, but I barely wrote a word of it after I was done my chemo after the last chemo, uh, uh, treatment, I felt I was done with it. And, and I, I, it was painful to go back and look at it again. Uh, now, I've 
tooled with it and 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 got it in shape to publish it. Uh, but uh, but no, I, I didn't go down and daily write anything anymore because I was like, you know what? I, I feel like I've I've come home after a long journey. Yeah, fully. And I mean, I had a journal. I was keeping a journal uh, as well. And as soon as the, those two years were up, I closed that journal. I didn't write about cancer anymore in that journal. It was done. Um, you know, and 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 a lot of my story was already written. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had just been sitting there, and then and, and I just kind of dove back in, like you said, just sort of like cleaning it cleaning up, it up, and then and, you know, and and whatnot. But um, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it, just, you just got to write it down, get it out of your head, and uh, and put it somewhere. Yeah, I think so. I would recommend that to anyone who's going through uh, anything like this. So what do you say to people that perhaps would say, well, there's nothing funny about cancer. How dare you? (laughs) Well, you know, you got to try it out. No, I'm just joking. Uh, (laughs) No, uh, it's true. There is nothing funny about cancer. It's not it's not funny. Um, And and so it's weird that I say that. And then I'm like, well, I did a show and it was was comedy. Uh, But I'm a comedian and I, I deal with all. Uh, so many issues it, it doesn't matter what it is I always try to find the humor and the light right. in it um and I had that choice you know I was sitting there sometimes in my in bed thinking okay if I'm gonna do something I had to tell everybody all of the dark crappy things that happen uh in this in this through this illness and through this journey and it's just gonna be this dramatic awful piece about what it's really like to go through treatment and I'm like but that's not me that's not that's not who I am and what do you hope people take away from this book? I, I really hope that people can take take away the same thing I took away from uh, reading other people's stories and hearing other people's stories, which is which is just hope and uh, and a little bit of uh, of inspiration or mm-hmm. uh, understanding too of of what it is to go through cancer because I think we all all have this this, this preset mindset there. It's like you lose your hair, you lose right. some weight, you're smiling in the pictures, but you'll get you'll get through it. And there's just so much that people are going through every day uh, out there. And I think, and I know, I think they're just, if we're more aware of what, what uh, people are going through too, it just, um, it can give, give people a better perspective on, on life in certain situations when they, when they're facing adversity. That was Daniel Stolfi, author of the memoir, The Comedian Versus Cancer. It's available now wherever you buy fine books, and a portion of proceeds from the book sales will benefit Young Adult Cancer Canada. My next guest, Mark Williams, has a very familiar face. He became famous playing English wizard Arthur Weasley in seven of the hit Harry Potter films. Since wrapping up the Potter movies, Williams has starred in Father Brown, one of the UK's longest-running daytime drama series on the BBC. He plays the lead character, a Roman Catholic priest who somehow finds himself involved in one murder after another and always outwits the bumbling policeman to get to the bottom of each case first. The popular series is now available on BritBox in Canada. Mark Williams joins me to chat about the show from his home in England. Now, let's talk about Father Brown. Uh, this is so successful. Uh, why do you think that it has struck such a chord with viewers? Um, I think it's good storytelling. Mm. Um, and it's kind of not too, there's not a lot of ego in it. I mean, he's not an egotistical character. And I think people respond to that, um, I guess. Um, and y- you're not being um, battered by opinion. You're not being told what to think, mm-hmm. uh, which is increasingly seems to be what drama is about at the moment. Well, it, I, I think uh, that 
it has a different appeal than other detective stories like uh, Sherlock Holmes or something like that, because uh, it is not about judgment so much. It's not about the punishment. It's about really getting to know uh, the characters and the motivations behind the, the terrible things that these yeah. people have done. Yeah, it's not an intellectual puzzle, which is the kind of um, raison d'etre of quite a lot of the golden age whodunits. You know, it's there, mm. there's an objectivity to solving the problem. Whereas he's anything but objective, he's subjective, you know, because of his faith. When you play a character like this over the course of many years, uh, do you get a greater understanding of what makes him tick? Or for you, is it all on the page? That's a good question. But I have to say, yeah, first of all, one, I'm an actor, not a psychoanalyst. <laughs> um, and um, um, I, I would debate with anybody about how much they understand anybody, even themselves. People talk about it a lot, but they don't understand they may understand certain threads of behavior, but they don't understand the whole thing. How can you? It's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's a fantasy to believe that. Um, and sometimes a controlling fantasy. Um, and I think that one thing I have learned is to, is to let go and to trust the page. I mean, I'm never one of those actors who say, oh, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> How do you know he wouldn't? How do you know he wouldn't do that? Um, so, you know, character reveals itself often in the things that are unexpected. And I like that very much. It's like, it's not a challenge. I think it's, it's an absolute help to godsend uh, to, you know, just he's, okay, he's done something completely out of character. Brilliant. Who doesn't? And do you think that that approach to character uh, is, I don't know, I don't want to say uniquely uh, British, but American actors tend to really talk a lot more about their characters and say things like, my character wouldn't do that. I don't get that sense so much from British actors or Canadian actors, for that matter, who I tend to think uh, are much more in the British tradition than Americans are. Do you think that has something to do with it? Um, I think what quite a lot of what it has to do with is, is stage, the stage and training and an acquaintance with Shakespeare. Um, um, and you, you, the, the character writing is so much more complex than you could possibly come up with. Um, if you just sit there in a room and, and read uh, your lines and, and decide what you're going to think about your character. Um, and also, one thing that the American approach, as as you say, is that it kind of forgets all the other people around you, mm. like the other actors, like, you know, you're listening to them because that's moder modulating everything you do. It's like being in a band rather than being a kind of soloist. You're listening to my interview with Mark Williams on The Richard Krause Show. Watch him in the popular detective drama Father Brown, now available on BritBox. Uh, this show is set in the 1950s, and that informs, uh, I think, a great deal of the storytelling. Why is uh, the date at which it takes place so important to uh, the whole feel of the show? I think what happened after the war is that all the things we um, consider to be modern in the way we deal with each other and a lot of um, society start, has its roots there um, in the experiences people had of, of what happened during the war and the upheaval 
and also what they had to deal with afterwards. Um, and um, the way they treat each other, which had to be <laughs> thought about quite a lot, I think, after everybody found out what had been going on. And um, people looked to themselves a bit more, I think. Um, um, the old prejudices, and I mean that advisedly, um, had to be put aside. And we still haven't quite done managed it yet, but at least there was a start made. Also, a lot of the modern things, you know, the um, mass media really took off there and personal transport. Um, and people had more money, you know, they, they were not bound by poverty to the extent that they knew they could eat, <coughs> which people are forgetting is only, you know, it's less than 100 years old. Yeah. The idea that hunger is not going to pursue you. You say that a big part of Father Brown is learning to practice forgiveness. Uh, is that the message of the show? I don't think we've got a message apart from please watch our show. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think we go in for messages. No, I mean, I, I would say that it, it's it's not. Yeah, don't judge. And, you know, there's going to be another side to every story. I mean, judgment seems key. And unfortunately, we seem to be hurtling down the, the judgment route at the moment where people are taking it upon themselves to judge. But judges, judgment is mine, saith the Lord. I think you'll find. I, I think it's also uh, great that Father Brown being said in the 1950s, there's no social media. And so <laughs> a lot of that judgment well, that we just well, talked about comes that. from I, that. I disagree. There's gossip. Mm. Um, there, was, there was incredibly powerful social media. Um, you know, localized, but my God, yeah. Oh no, that the, the things spread like wildfire with the same misinformation mm -hmm. gleefully handed on from person to person. The other thing you've got to remember is letters, which of course were private and secret. Mm -hmm. And often only after people's deaths do you find out what they were saying and what was being said to them. And some of that can come as a shock. <laughs> Nobody writes letters anymore. I do. Oh, do you still? Yeah. Only to only to a few people who yeah. respond in kind. Yeah. I, I just think of one one of my memories of my late mother was sitting watching her write letters to people. And it's just yeah. something that that in a lot of ways seems like uh, of another age, another time. No, but we got a kind of a nostalgic memory of that because you read a lot of postcards and letters and mm -hmm. half of it is Half of it's the weather and the rest is must go now, must catch the post. You know, what, really? But the post's leaving in three minutes. There's, there's, not, a, there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of it, you know, descriptive talent or kind of soul searching. They're very superficial, obviously, of, of often. They're just about making contact, you know, which is exactly what we do now. Hi. You know, it's kind of emoticons on paper that was mark williams you can see him on father brown on britbox that's all the time we have big thanks to all my guests but of course my biggest thanks goes to you for listening i'm richard kraus stay healthy stay happy stay safe stay weird we'll talk to you again soon